back with another edition of Making Money. Ron Hebert, the financial coach, retired portfolio manager, is with me. I'm Gord Whitehead, a retired broadcaster. Well, let's talk about the big, bad-horned guy over in the corner there, Ron. The oil and gas industry. We've talked about it at length on Making Money over the last few years. I think the question on, on, on a lot of people's minds right now, should I still be investing here? Because over the last couple of years... I know personally a couple of guys who went all in on oil and gas, and they have done exceptionally well. So what's your take right now? Well, oil and gas investments are facing a lot of headwinds, which include uh, environmental, social, and governance. Uh, this is being pushed as a new ethical standard by which investors that want to be viewed as moral make their investment decisions. You have investment restrictions. Many pensions and institutional investors will not invest in fossil fuel companies, period. You've got banking restrictions under Mark Carney, our former head of the Bank of Canada. Uh, many of the Western banks have signed on to a deal where they're going to be restricting lending to companies with a high carbon footprint. And you've also got government restrictions. Governments are restricting pipelines, access to crown land for drilling. Uh, they're actively legislating in many jurisdictions to restrict the sale of new vehicles with internal combustion engines. And the list goes on and on. So there's a lot of headwinds right now. And because of that, investors have said, well, look, this is a dying sector. I'm going to stay out of this for many, many reasons. And because of these challenges, you're just having people saying, because of the risks and because I don't really understand what's going on, I'm just going to avoid this sector altogether. But there are some shafts of light penetrating the current gloom. And that's really what we want to focus on today. And the question we're asking is, oil and gas, is this sector even investable anymore? And actually, I think it is. Okay, so let's look at some of the reasons why you feel that way. And we can have this conversation, as I'm sure many of us have in your social circle. If you sit down and you think practically, you know it's not going away entirely. It just can't. There are too many things in our lives from which products we use on a daily basis depend on the oil and gas industry. You know, and the conversion to renewables just can't happen at the speed and scale that the green movement uh, believes they can. Number one, we don't have the technology. You know, we're decades away from having the storage technology to be able to store the energy that we generate because frankly, a lot of energy is used in the evening. When the sun doesn't shine, what happens when the wind doesn't blow? You need storage capacity, and that, frankly, is still the weak link. We don't have the resources. I mean, when you get Elon Musk standing up there and saying, mining companies, I hope you're paying attention because if the trajectory for electric battery-powered vehicles goes the way governments are pushing them to go, we will not have the lithium, the aluminum, the nickel, the Cobalt, lead. All of, yeah. Yeah, all of those things. Where are they going to come from? And right now, you go to countries like where you know we've exported a lot of that production because we don't like these mining industries in North America because they're polluting. But you go to places like Argentina, you go to places like China, you go to places like Indonesia, they're seeing the profits rise and they're they're putting new environmental standards, employees are asking for higher wages, uh, governments in areas in Africa like 
Tanzania, for example, are renegotiating the contracts so they get a higher royalty off of all of this, and, or they're delaying the construction permits. So even if these resources are available, which they're not, they're going to take longer to come online because there's just a lot more barriers to do that than there's been in the past. And we don't have the, in, the electrical in, infrastructure. You know, what would happen if we, if we were electric tomorrow and we all plugged in tonight? Well, I, I've had this discussion with several people that are in the know that have some electrical background. And for instance, in my neighborhood, we, we live on a bit of a, a, a cul-de-sac, if you will. Let's call it eight homes. If four of them plugged in, the grid would go down. The, the, the drain would be such that you couldn't power everybody in the neighborhood. As you say, when the lights, you know, when you have to turn the lights on at night. So practically speaking, I think we still have a long way to go here. When you look at the brownouts in states like California, the infrastructure is woefully inadequate to handle even the small amounts of renewable energy we're currently producing. Now, I'm not a naysayer. I believe that we're moving away from fossil fuels. I just don't think for a lot of reasons it's going to happen at near the speed that they talk about. And the fourth big reason is we don't have the money. Zero carbon is expected to cost $140 trillion. That's with a T. With a T. And you get companies like countries like India saying that unless someone gives them the capital, they'll never have the financial resources to get there on their own. So where's this money coming from? Is Santa Claus going to come down the chimney at Christmas with $140 trillion to save the day? Probably not. So sure, we can allocate so much money each year to, to conversion, but the timeline is going to have to be stretched out for us to be able to afford it, especially if we want to make meaningful headway, we have to look at third world countries and second world countries because they're not going to be able to get there financially on their own. And we can't afford to uh, move our own economies to renewable. How are we going to move a country like India, which has 1.3 billion people? And as you say, <clears throat> excuse me, Ron, in addition to the infrastructure that we're lacking, in order to get this done, I, I keep, hear, keep, keep hearing people say, well, we don't have enough people smart enough to figure this out. So do we need to educate people differently here? Well, we don't have the basic STEM graduates, which are science, technology, engineering, and math, to fill the jobs needed to run a renewable <clears throat> world. And so unless we uh, get them and train them, and of course, it takes four years even to get a basic degree in this, and we're going to need people with advanced degrees to do some of the research. Well, someone out of university, I remember when I came out of university with four years of education. I was essentially useless. <laughs> Sorry, I was essentially useless. I had some basic skills, but it takes another two or three years just to be able to get enough practical experience to put some of those things you learned in the classroom into practical use so that you're actually capable of solving problems. So if you get four years from now and then you add another three, and that's assuming that there was an education revolution tomorrow, it's going to be seven years before we start actually having quality product or more uh, to, to fix and solve all these problems. And you know that puts us already almost to 2030. Um, to begin to trickle out any graduates at all. And of course, they're bringing them in from overseas, but 
they're not bringing them in nearly fast enough to, to be able to meet these timetables. And so that's the issue for me. It's just the timetables just aren't re realistic. And I would think, this is the skeptic in me, I don't know that we have the right people in government to sit down and say, well, okay, here's a plan. This is what we have to do. This is how we have to channel our our monies or whatever, our talents into this particular sector so that we can get the goal we're wishing to achieve. I don't have a lot of faith in the system right now. And of course, when you've got politicians having to be reelected, you have this little patch and that little patch and this helter-skelter idea. So you have a lot of unconnected things that are, that are happening. I mean, it's pushing things forward. But they could go faster if they actually had a plan that they could they could stick to, and of course there is no real master plan um, in the in the works, and of course you no know, you look at uh, we'll move on to reason number two and this just adds to what we're talking about here, the International Energy Agency predicts that by 2050 we're still going to be using oil and gas because. What you don't hear is that achieving a 75% reduction in emissions from fossil fuel operations, as set out in the zero emissions uh, statement that the International Energy Agency has made by 2050, this would take the world's most of the way toward a global methane pledge, and it would reduce production by 75%, which means that oil volumes in 2050, if, if, they met the IEA's targets, would drop from 100 million barrels a day, not to zero, but to 25 million barrels of oil a day. We don't need to get to zero to get to uh, net zero emissions. And that's one thing you don't hear very often. So even if we m get to our targets, there's still going to be room within the energy mix for some oil and gas. Hence the idea why you might still want to think about of it as investable. Um, how are oil and gas companies doing right now? Let's, let's, let's get specific here. Are they in pretty good shape? Well, there's two things. Number one, oil and gas companies are trading at two to three times their cash flow. In other words, they're <clears throat> making so much money that the amount of cash they're generating literally equals the value of their entire business in, in sometimes even one year, sometimes two, sometimes three. But they're incredibly cheap right now. They're producing enough cash flow from profits to equal a value of their company in less than three years. This gives them lots of time to produce profits for shareholders. And of course, energy companies are prioritizing buying back shares and returning cash to shareholders in the form of special dividends. And they're not taking the crazy amounts of debt on to drill baby drill like they used to. So <laughs> this is a very shareholder friendly time for investors because most of the cash flow they're generating ends up back in shareholders' pockets. So that's one of the reasons maybe to look at the sector. What do we conclude out of all of this? We've had a, a pretty far-reaching discussion here. And, and again, this is one that stirs so much passion in people. There are those who want to see oil and gas come to an end. We want to get off fossil fuels. Practically speaking, can we do that? A lot of people say no. Other people say, well, we aren't doing it properly. So what do we conclude out of all of this? Is, is it still an investable sector, Ron? It's still investable, but people have to understand that energy is cyclical. You make your money by buying low and selling high. 
And it looks like we've got as many as three or four major energy bull markets left before the party's over in 2050. Don't forget, that is still 27 years away. And so if, if energy typically moves in seven to eight year cycles, uh, there's a number of big ones that could happen before, before it gets uh, marginalized to uh, a, a, a small and shrinking industry. And secondly, if you're worried about investing in the commodity of oil and gas itself, take the more conservative route and buy pipelines. They're restricted from uh, building more, so the in existing infrastructure is just getting more valuable. You know, I mean, everywhere you go, uh, they're, they're blocking their expansion or there's lawsuits piled up to the moon. And so the amount of new pipelines that are actually going to be built is, is going to be limited. So the space that they have is getting more and more valuable. And most of these companies, I mean, you look at companies like Enbridge or TransCanada Pipe, I mean, you're looking at 5 to 6% dividends with the tax credits. And eventually this infrastructure could be converted to ship hydrogen, helium, chemicals, or even water. And most pipelines have strong balance sheets and pay high dividends. So if you're looking for a more conservative way to play the energy sector, look at some of the pipeline stocks. They're really quite attractive. So it's a very necessary part of life. Uh, as we see, we watch the news, what's happening over in Europe with the winter fast approaching. They're worried about Putin's cut off gas supplies. What are we going to do to heat our homes? Uh, I, what was the one? Is it one of the countries in Sweden or Finland or somebody has said that they, they've actually passed legislation. If your thermostat goes above 19 degrees, you're subject to fines and jail time. So this is uh, it's a necessary part of life, a necessary evil. Would that be a way that some people look at it, Ron? I would definitely say that Europe is going to face a crisis this winter because it looks like uh, Russia is doubling down. Uh, I was reading this morning uh, that they literally had, uh, they're going for a general conscription and going to try and bring 300,000 more troops into the Ukrainian battlefield. So Russia's not folding on the pressure that they're getting from trade sanctions at all. And because of that, this war is likely to go on all winter unless there is some diplomatic breakthrough. And if that happens, then Europe is going to see the literally their fuel supplies from Russia cut to zero or very small amounts. So, you know, it's going to be a wild winter out there for energy stocks. And especially if they're really volatile, that creates some really amazing trading opportunities. So... Think about that. Food to chew on here. We're back next week with another edition of Making Money. If you want to reach us or have a question, a show suggested, we're open to those. Reach us at letsmakemoney.ca or through cfcw.com. On behalf of the financial coach, Ron Hebert, I'm Gord Whitehead. We'll talk to you next week. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.